Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One. Welcome back to another episode here of the Box and One podcast. Really uh, kind of a slow part of the season right now. Free agency has come to a screeching halt as everybody in the world is waiting on a potential Kevin Durant or Donovan Mitchell trade. Summer League is in the rearview mirror. Not a lot of you know player movement, but a lot of stuff going on in the grassroots and AAU circuits. So we decided we'd open up a mailbag and answer some questions this week just about what's going on in the NBA, the 2023 draft that's coming up, Summer League recap and thoughts that maybe we didn't cover on our last podcast, which uh, Maxwell Bombach, if you haven't heard that podcast, he joined us and did a great review of Summer League. So go check that one out. And then also keeping our ear to the ground of AAU season. Um, you know, we're recording this here. Tuesday, July 26th, we will have our weekly installments of some film sessions on a couple incoming freshmen. Uh, later on this week, we'll have our next episode dropping. We did Derek Whitehead last week, and then a couple weeks ago, Judah Mintz, who will be going to Syracuse. Uh, with that said, you know, we're going to be taking a vacation at the beginning of August here. I think that's the appropriate time to hit the reset button. We pushed through a little bit, not just getting through the 2022 NBA draft, but turning the corner really quickly into summer league and trying to open things up for the 2023 look ahead. So now that we've written a couple pieces over on our Substack page, uh, I think it's time to get one last mailbag in here and then take a week or two off, recharge the batteries and get ready for my own season and school year that'll be ramping up once August really gets into full swing. So uh, really appreciate your support, your patience, all the, the listeners that tune in and, and those who are watching on YouTube. Thank you so much. If you haven't already, make sure you, uh, you leave a rating and subscribe. Some comments in the comments section on these podcasts always go a long way in helping us promote our material. But you guys have been, been great at supporting the Box and One podcast as we are almost to the one year mark that we have been uh, been active both on our Substack and on our podcast. So thank you all so much for that. But let's get to the questions because that's kind of what we're all here for. Travis at Hasslefree T asked a pretty interesting question. I think a good one to start with here. What sources do you utilize to watch film? Is it TV recordings? Is it YouTube? Where do you go? I get this question a lot from, you know, wannabe uh, scouts and draft experts, which is is kind of myself. I'm a wannabe. And where do you go to, to really dive into film as deeply as I do? I am incredibly fortunate through my years as a college coach that I have access to Synergy. And through that, I can get at the click of a button, any type of possession, uh, any game clips that I want to see pretty much within a couple hours after the game is, is concluded. I can go on there and look those up. So Synergy is an unbelievable resource. Shout out to my guy, Matt Curley at Synergy, who is the world's nicest human being. Uh, but it's a, an invaluable resource. I get a ton of use out of it. It's part of the reason why I'm able to turn around video scouting reports so quickly because it's so well organized, but it has all of that film at your fingertips. When we get to high school stuff, I know... There are small bits of AAU and EYBL stuff that's out there on Synergy, but I tend to rely a little bit more on full recordings and games on YouTube that I can download and cut up on my own just to go with what's available. So, you know, the future and the look ahead scouting reports tend to be 
just whatever you can get your hands on. But at the end of the day, when I'm diving into the full scattering reports, I'm using Synergy, which uh, does have an international feature as well. All right. Nick's Feed and the Big Steppers at Nick's Feed. That's at K-N-I-C-K-Z Feed. Ask about G.G. Jackson. This is a, another question that's really relevant right now. And G.G. Jackson, for those of you that don't know, one of the top uh, high school class of 2023 prospects who ended up reclassing and making the decision this summer to move to college basketball a year early, following in the footsteps of Imani Bates and Jalen Duran last year. Gigi is going to be joining a college team this year, and he decommitted from North Carolina to head to South Carolina down there, which was a, a controversial move because not, not only was North Carolina, you know, a final four team last year and, and had a, a really, really good season, but, you know, Gigi is more of a, a three slash four, a six foot eight front court athlete type of guy. Carolina making the addition of uh, transfer Pete Nance from Northwestern. I think blockaded a lot of minutes that prevented Gigi from making a reclass decision and staying with the Tar Heels. So that's going to be a, a really fascinating uh, undercurrent of this season is, you know, can Carolina be as good as they were last year and, and make a run in the NCAA tournament so they don't regret not keeping that space clear for a potential Gigi reclass. But anyway, Nick's feet and the big steppers asked about Gigi. What are our thoughts on him as a prospect? And what are some worthwhile aspects of his game that are worth betting on long-term? I think athleticism is the first thing that we always look at for young guys, because most of what they're going to learn that's relevant on an NBA court happens after they're 17 years old. So if we're trying to evaluate guys at a young age, do they look the part? Do they have the athleticism to not be hunted on the defensive end, to be a, a positive factor, to create separation from their man in any type of situation? Gigi jumps off the page as an athlete, really, really explosive and smooth, a good finisher around the rim. He has an inside outside game where he's already comfortable mismatch posting smaller guys getting to his right hook, um, you know, again, good finisher off the bounce and as a face up driver and a developing three point shot. I think the things worth betting on for him are not just the athleticism, but how it translates to the defensive end. I think he has the potential to be a really, really elite defensive player at the NBA who guards that three slash four position, which we talk about a lot, is being the way the NBA game is trending right now towards having that fusion of positions of, of versatility there. I think Gigi can guard both while having enough athleticism to switch on the perimeter, super long arms, and a projectable jump shot. I don't think it's going to be a strength of his game, but you know, maybe a guy like uh, Kawhi Leonard might be the right comp here, where if he keeps working on it and gets it to a, you know, a, a consistent point, he's probably around 35, 36%. And for a, a high volume piece and the athletic tools that he has and brings to the table, that's good enough to complement the, the great parts of his game. Big GG Jackson fan, curious to see how the year plays out for him in a very physical and athletic SEC playing there in South Carolina. Johnny at PNW Sports 503. If we could redraft after Summer League, who would move up the most and who would move down the most on our board? So, cop out answer for you, Johnny. Um, I don't tend to move anybody down this early in the process. 
I trust the college film and the evaluation and that if somebody had a rough couple of games, it's merely a data point and it's going to be an adjustment period for them coming to the NBA. It's not enough to talk me out of the evaluation period that I had for guys earlier. On the flip side of that coin, I can definitely move guys up and, and understand early on from the, what they showed in summer league. Hey, I missed the boat on this guy. He's clearly better at X, Y, or Z. He's already improved in certain areas that we said he needed to improve in, or he just impacts the game uh, in a way that I didn't completely understand or think moving forward. I, I think the first guy that has to pop out in that regard for me, and I said it on the podcast with Maxwell Baumbach last week, is, uh, is Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara. Because let's just face it, I had him as a, a top, I think he was 15th on my overall big board in that final board. I did not see him being as impactful on the defensive end and scalable in a role player uh, role player spot to be efficient as he was right out of the gate. Just incredibly good, incredibly polished. There was a, a part of me right before the draft, and I know this sounds like revisionist history, there was a part of me that wanted to put him in the top 10 that wanted to put him in the Keegan Murray, Jonathan Davis, Jalen Duran, Dyson Daniels type of tier. And I couldn't quite pull the trigger uh, because, you know, I, I was a little bit driven back by the, the amount of three point catch and shoot attempts that he had at Santa Clara. He played a lot with the ball in his hands. I would have liked to see more to feel comfortable, but I should have believed in the shot. I mean, Williams is just tailor-made to be a third or fourth option on an NBA team who's good at legitimately everything. Anybody else that kind of moved up and improved in my eyes? I think Tari Eason just showed, again, enough impact with his athleticism on the defensive end and, and his slashing ability on offense that I probably should have overlooked the clunky aspects of his game a little bit more. Um, you know, Josh Minot looks just a lot more smooth and fluid on the offensive end than I gave him credit for. But other than that, right now, you know, there's there's going to be a question later on that we'll answer about some philosophical changes that we make to the draft process that might answer this question a little bit more in depth. But right now, like we we feel okay with where we had guys. Nothing overly uh, to you know overreact or underreact to, but. Definitely uh, a bigger fan of Jalen Williams than I even was a week ago. I didn't think that was, uh, that was possible. All right. Uh, J.M. Hines asked a very similar question about change in eval based on their play from the summer. We just answered that one. Joseph Dames, that's, a, that's an interesting question here. At Joseph Forecast, are we saying farewell to the point guard who's undersized? If not... Do they have to be more proven offensively or defensively? Really good question. We've wrestled with this before. I think the days of the undersized point guard, at least the non-shooting undersized point guard, are going away. Uh, Sharif Cooper and Trey Jones, two guys that I had top 20 grades on in, what was that, 2020 and 2021, are basically on the fringes, if not out of the league already, because you just have to be so good uh, as a playmaker in order to overcome both a size uh, issue on the defensive end and the lack of consistent three-point shooting off the bounce. If guys just go underneath you in ball screens, it's really hard to counteract that as a smaller guy, particularly knowing that you're going to have a target on your chest defensively. If, if there's one area you have to be a little bit more proven in, you know, I'd say the jury's still a little bit out on a guy like Kennedy Chandler. I think he's a little more proven defensively 
than he is on offense because he has really long arms, decent athleticism, quick hands on the perimeter, and tested well analytically on his defensive production. So if Kennedy Chandler is any type of indication, I think that more defensive-minded guys tend to be the ones that uh, put teams' minds at ease, that they're going to still be able to make a similar impact to what they showed in college. But if you are going to be proven offensively, to me, it has to be with really deep three-point shooting range, right? Like Darius Garland isn't that undersized, but part of the reason he makes it is because he's got range far beyond the three-point line. So uh, kind of, again, cop-out answer to that question right there. I think three-point shooting on offense is a must if you're going to be an undersized guard to, to play in today's NBA. Nathaniel Miller, one of our, our favorite uh, questionnaires here, always, always dropping some good ones for us, at Journalist Nate, asked, how much value do we put in summer international tournaments when we start our early big boards? To be honest, we put a lot of value in that. I, I think that the two biggest aspects of looking for younger talent are going to be high levels of AAU, which are you know EYBL, Under Armour Circuit, and Adidas Gauntlet. Um, as well as those international FIBA-based tournaments. I think that the level of competition needs to be to a certain height, though. Like I, I, This is no disrespect, but there are teams in those FIBA tournaments that can't field a competitive Division I type of roster. And because of that, it, it's going to be really hard to evaluate every single game with the same type of consistency. But when we're watching Team USA versus Spain or against France with the, you know, the 16-unders or the the 18 U's it doesn't necessarily matter what it is. I think it's a great indicator for getting a good feel of those international prospects. We have enough different data points with high level high school hoops and AAU here to see all of the American guys play and track their progress, their skill level on a, a court that, uh, you know, resembles something of NBA basketball international guys. I always want to see how they react to, the athleticism of Team USA, because that is time and time again what America kind of hangs their hat on in terms of how they play at these tournaments. They pick up with full court pressure, they trap, they blitz guys off the bounce, and they just bank on putting more pressure on the rim than the next guy. I want to see how international guys handle that. If they can survive defensively, not look overwhelmed athletically, they end up making a big jump on my early big boards and at the very least, an international guy to watch. Uh, look, we're a one-man show here at the Box and One. We don't have enough time to watch every single level of every single game tape of all these different guys internationally as well as here in the United States. So uh, what we do try to, to find is those intersections of talent and international tournaments are big ones for us to really hang our hat on. Speaking of international, our guy Erson Demir at Edemir MBA. Uh, if you're not following him, make sure you do that, folks. Puts out a lot of great content, asks good questions, some good film clips that he's putting out there on Twitter. Asked about Harrison Ingram, sophomore at Stanford. What's our expectation for Ingram next year? The expectation for me is to see growth as a jump shooter. Anytime you are a potential one-and-done prospect and you go back to school because your jump shot is broken, Essentially, it needs to make progress. And, and Ingram was flirting with the 30% mark this year, really finished the season on a poor note for Stanford, just could not hit a jump shot, started to come around a little bit more in January where we were, we were believing in the jump shot. 
And it didn't end up finishing the season that way through February and into early March. So I think the jumper is the big thing for him to fix. Our expectation is that if he does it, he ends up being a first round guy. Uh, six foot seven, six, eight, long arms, good defensively, incredibly high IQ, loves to be able to mismatch post guys. Um, I think that there's a, a role for him in the NBA offense where you're coming down on sideline break opportunities. He's a prime candidate to set one of those pistol or step up screens for another guard, force a switch, drop into the post and really create offense in there. But he needs to be able to be somebody that exists without the ball in his hands because he, quite frankly, doesn't score it well enough right now. There's a little bit of a Sean Livingston-ish type of game to him, but I think that Sean Livingston is the exception and not the rule for a bigger guard or a wing who operates with their back to the basket. Like he thrived in Golden State because they surrounded him with shooters, with movement, and embraced the style that he brought to the table by enabling him and throwing the ball into him in the post time and time again. I don't know if Ingram is that good of a player, a playmaker, a passer, um, but he, if in order to avoid getting kind of sandwiched into that role, I think the jump shot is really big for Harrison Ingram. All right. Conal at Sham Rocket Ito. Good question here about, yes, the Houston Rockets. Do they have enough good guard play for Jabari Smith to really shine in his rookie year? I thought a lot about this question before we went on and recording it, and I want to make sure that I, I hit the words exactly right to sum up how we're feeling. The Houston Rockets have very good guard play. I believe in Ty Ty Washington, Kevin Porter Jr., definitely in Jalen Green, and, uh, and I think that they're going to be able to, to get enough out of Eric Gordon this year as well, as, as long as he stays in a Rockets uniform, that their backcourt is talented. There is a difference between being young and talented and being a guard who knows how to set the table for different scorers who are dependent on your creation for them. Jabari Smith, and we've said this for the last nine or 10 months, is a really good shooter who is dependent on his guards to put him in positions to succeed. We saw in summer league that timing from some of those guards can be a little bit off. I think Ty Ty Washington was the best of the bunch. But Josh Christopher, not quite there yet. That said, one guy that's not thrown into this equation enough is Alperin Shengun. I think the Rockets are going to play through him in the high post and the, and the low post, as well as in those delay actions at the top of the key. A, a fair deal. And with that, Jabari can get different actions. You can screen for him. He can screen for others and, and see him involved in two-man games or, or different types of actions that are going to get him easy shots. I think Shengun might be the highest processing passer on the Rockets right now. So uh, again, kind of a cop-out answer here. Like I, I think that Smith is going to have a solid rookie year, not necessarily a go for rookie of the year type of contention uh, candidacy, but don't, don't undersell the importance of guards who know when to pass, not just how to pass or, uh, are physically capable of making them. And if there's one complaint that you have about a superstar like Jalen Green right now, it's that he hasn't quite mastered that yet. I think he can get there. It might not be Jabari's rookie year, but I do really love that pairing long-term. So Rockets fans, don't panic. Like, Don't get on my case too much. You're going to be fine over the long-term. All right, Mr. Bracallo, another one of our favorite questionnaires here over on the Boxing One podcast asked a question 
philosophically, would you rather have the best defender on the floor or not have the worst? And I've wrestled with trying to define exactly, you know, what the, this question is geared to, if it's situation dependent, if, if I have to talk about positions and, and versatility of that defender, but at its, you know, at its base of the question right here, if I could choose to know that I walk into every game having the best defender on the floor, I take it. And I'm assuming there's enough versatility there where the best defender can impact whatever opponent that we're playing, whatever style that is. And I would much rather have that piece and find ways to make it work on the offensive end than build out a roster of a ton of really offensive, talented guys and just say, hey, like we don't have the most targeted option on the floor right now. So I, I believe individual defense is vastly underrated when at an elite level. And if we're talking about the best, then I'll take that guy pretty much every time. All right. Aiden at Lacro Rear One. How do you determine preseason NBA draft value of returning players? Awesome, awesome question. Um, a lot of it has to do with what film we see from them freshman year and the areas of improvement. Anytime we're talking about improvement areas, I, I hate the term weaknesses. If there's one thing that I hope other scouts or, or people who evaluate talent that listen to this podcast can take away, it's that the term weaknesses is insulting and antiquated. We are talking about teenagers for the most part, young guys that are still learning the game of basketball. And a lot of the habits that they bring to the table are correctable, not just skills. Some of the athletic concerns that you have are also correctable when taught right, when gone through the right process. So throw out the term weakness and talk about area of improvement. This is something that the prospect isn't good at yet. And when we look at those improvement areas, we want to see what's within their control to really get better at early on in their career, i.e. within the next year before they'll be draft eligible again in 2023. And what do the circumstances on their current college team really change between what they played in last year and what they play in this year. So one example that we'll give, and this is a guy that is going to be the first of our, our breakdowns of uh, rising sophomores is we're going to go through some video work with uh, audio clips and, and us narrating of five sophomores that we think are primed for breakout candidates candidacy. And as we talk about them, you'll, you'll hear us go through a normal scouting report in context, but we'll talk a lot about the changing of roles on the team that they're currently on. And Jordan Hawkins out of Connecticut is going to be the first guy we go to. He wasn't the most efficient player as a freshman, struggled finishing at the rim, only shot 33% from three and was really streaky. Had a couple of great games and a couple of games where he just fell off the map. But when you watch the tape, you, you go back and you say, hey, this guy pops athletically, He's got a lot of different tools in his arsenal. You're betting on the tools learning to be sharpened and refined to the point where the prospect knows how to use them and something about the circumstances of play changing. Connecticut is losing their top backcourt option in RJ Cole. He's gone to the NBA and, and is going to end up being a, a pretty good G League player, I believe. Jordan Hawkins now has the opportunity to perhaps take a little bit longer of a leash on the offensive end where he isn't just spotting up in the corners and knocking down threes. We know he can do that, but can he show us more with the ball in, her, in his hands? Part of the reason we are projecting him to be a top 50 guy 
on our preseason board is because we believe in the tools and we see the added opportunity in his current situation in Connecticut to be able to showcase them a little bit more. Uh, Aiden also asked a, a, another question about Jalen Hudshafino as a one and done talent. Yes, absolutely. We think Hudshafino is uh, another like Bryce McGowan's or Blake Wesley type of guy, a little bit underrated as a freshman, but can come in. And if he really scores the ball well, then he's going to shoot up draft boards and be a top 35 guy. All right. couple other questions before we get out of here. Thunderfan CZ asked about Dariq Whitehead, and we just published a video and a write-up on Whitehead last week. If you haven't seen it, going over to our YouTube channel or our Substack, theboxin1.substack.com, to read into Whitehead, a guy that we have a top five grade on coming into the season, really, really high on his game. Thunderfan CZ asked, what is Dariq Whitehead's biggest strength and area of improvement, not weakness, area of improvement? Uh, when watching his high school tape, ESPN guys constantly compare him to D Wade and praise his slashing, but I didn't see it. Seemed more of a shooter to me. Uh, Tatum archetype uh, thoughts and comparisons for Whitehead. Big fan of his scoring arsenal. I think that when you're looking at alphas, guys that you build around on the offensive end of the floor, you look for three level potential if you are a non big, if you're not a Giannis Antetokounmpo. You know, Nikola Jokic, one of those big guys. Uh, Whitehead has three-level potential. Athletic and bursty enough to get to the rim. I love the ability he has to hang in midair and be able to adjust on his finishes. Really, really interesting that he does that. Uh, loves the mid-range pull-up. That's where he, he lives right now. His bread and butter is on one dribble jumpers in the elbow area. He's got a lot of shift to be able to jab one way and go the other, create enough separation to get his jumper off. And he has started to improve from three. That improvement is built a lot over the last year or so. I think part of the reason that Whitehead gets the D Wade comp is because the three point shooting is a little newer and he is a high volume offensive guy who shows all the tools to be athletic and impactful on the defensive end. I I'm not huge on the comp game. Like I think Whitehead can be a three level scorer. I think he's best served as a bigger two than he is a smaller three. Again, that delineation of three slash four is an area that I think Whitehead may have a little bit of, of difficulty with. He really pops in transition. Like a lot of these guys, it's going to come down to the consistency of the shooting and can, can he continue to make strides in that regard? There are very small things to clean up on the footwork side of things, which we, we mentioned a little bit in our video breakdown, but a big, big, big fan of Dariq Whitehead and curious to see how the spacing at Duke really is going to impact the way that he plays because as a scorer and somebody that likes to play with the ball a little bit uh, before he creates separation, I think that when you have multiple bigs on the floor with him at a time, it shrinks the amount of space for him to get past his man and get to the rim in those circumstances. All right. Two more questions here. Eli Cohen at Eli underscore Cohen three with guys like BJ Boston, Cole Anthony, Zaire Williams, even Nas Little looking way better at the NBA level. How do you contextualize and react properly to high level recruits with disappointing freshman years? I love this question, Eli. Love it. And we actually wrote and are in the process of uh, continuing to extrapolate upon a, you know, five takeaways from summer league. And one of those takeaways was we're continuing to see 
exactly like Eli pointed out. A lot of these guys who are highly tatted recruits coming out of high school that don't quite put up numbers their freshman years in college still enter the draft and end up turning into good investments by NBA teams. I don't know how to contextualize it because I hesitate in making it a blanket statement. I think that there are definitely going to be guys, whether it's this draft class, last draft class, who kind of follow in that, um, that mold of, of not necessarily having a good freshman year and then not panning out in the NBA. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the Caleb Houston comparison right now is a little bit uh, premature to say that he's going to prove a lot of people wrong. He played well the opening game and proves that uh, he can definitely shoot it when he's on, but he was pretty cold for the rest of, of summer league there. So I don't want to jump to that conclusion. I think Max Christie is another guy like the early returns from summer league weren't great, but you know, let's, let's give it a little bit more time before we get to that point. And, and you know, as, as we're talking here, I'm pulling up some other big boards of guys like Brandon Boston and, and Zyre Williams were both top six guys in their class. Greg Brown was ranked ninth, but I mean, Josh Christopher at 12, like I wouldn't say he had a great freshman year and, and I'm not overly high on what he's shown in the NBA. Jaden Springer was a top 16 guy. I mean, that class, if we're looking at it 12 through, you know, 12 through 20 here was Josh Christopher, 12, Jalen Johnson, 13, Caleb Love, 14, Deron Sharp, 15, Jaden Springer, 16, Deshen Nix, 17, Maker Maker, 18, Keon Johnson, 19, Isaiah Todd, 20. None of those guys stand out as being NBA stars and studs, right? Um, it's, it's hard to exactly know how much stock to put into that because look, high school rankings are in an exact science. A lot of it goes on prestige of program, AAU program, size and athleticism, just dominance that is projected to the college level, not always to the NBA. So for every time that we have a guy who was highly rated, didn't play incredibly well in college, and then ends up turning around in the NBA, there are plenty of guys who were highly rated and don't end up getting to that point. I mean, we could go back several years here. I'm just going to, as we're doing this, pull up a random year and go 17, 2017 year. I mean, one, two, three, four, five in that year. Marvin Bagley, Michael Porter, Mo Bamba, DeAndre Ayton, Colin Sexton. I mean, players one and three, Bagley and Bamba, have been mildly disappointing in the NBA. Um, I think they all had really good college seasons and careers. Trayvon Duvall was ranked sixth. Man, great, great high school pedigree, six three point guard, good size, went to IMG, ends up going to Duke, kind of blends in next to Wendell Carter and Bagley. And I think that if he ends up going in the first round, he never pans out in those regards, you know, um, you know, Kevin Knox had a good freshman year and ended up, I don't want to say regressing, but not finding the natural niche and role for himself in the NBA. So again, I want to caution on doing blanket statements in that regard, but I do definitely, I do definitely see uh, a trend growing of, we can't write all of these guys off just because the one-year college film is bad. 
I don't have a great answer for what the balance is going to be. And I am working on putting words together right now to try to thread the needle in that regard. But Eli, question of the day, really good uh, philosophical piece, something that we're, we're trying to wrap our head around right now. Speaking of actually, you know what? Maybe best question of the day comes from our friend Simon Rath. And, and I joke with Simon about this on Twitter. He asks life questions, life philosophical, philosophical questions of, of guys. And uh, to be asked one of these questions when we ask for a mailbag episode makes us feel like we finally made it big time. So Simon, thank you for making our week. And if you're not following him at Hawks Draft Nerd, make sure you do so. He's uh, Simon's good people. All right. Question is, what is our favorite piece of clothing? Yeah, Simon. So a lot of different ways I can go with this one. Um, my favorite piece of clothing, just an individual specific solo piece that I own. I always have a pair of white Air Force ones, low tops or high tops. I, I always have a pair. Um, the, the all white look is just a classic one. I think it's been 10, 12 years since I haven't owned a pair of them. I have a pair with the boys Latin logo etched onto the side and the maroon swoosh on it, which is the school that I coach at right now is a gift from one of my former players who runs a custom shoe company. Uh, one of the, the greatest gifts that I've ever received. There's a couple on the, the walls behind me from a couple former players and, and, and people in, in that regard. Um, but that is my, by far my favorite piece of clothing. Uh, runner up would be this Lithuanian Jersey, uh, Lithuanian national team Jersey with my name and number on it. So, um, a lot of basketball related stuff, but favorite individual piece comes from gifts. If we're talking just in general, like, what do I like to wear? You know, I live in, in the, the DMV area, I'm in Baltimore and it is humid in the summers. I'm turning into a big tank top guy. Uh, I don't have the guns to, or the, the pectoral or the core to really pull that off in a, an aesthetically pleasing way, but I'm a guy who goes for comfort over, over appearance. So a uh, piece of clothing for me, without a doubt, the white air force ones. Thank you all for sticking with us for all the questions. Uh, I know there were a couple that we didn't quite get to, but really appreciate all of you for submitting them. Stick with us here at the Box and One throughout the summer for a few more video breakdowns of some 2023 draft candidates, as well as some draft philosophy pieces. But we're taking a little bit of a break here, going on vacation, visiting the in-laws. Pray for me in that regard. Thank you all for your support of the Box and One here. We hope to see you next time, Hoopaholics. Have a good one.